Mark chapter 8 and verses 27 to 30. And it goes like this. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, Jesus asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, Jesus asked? Who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Would you give a very warm welcome to Amy or Ewing as she comes to speak? Thank you, and thank you for that welcome. It's wonderful to be with you this evening, and we have an opportunity to just really consider that question um, that Jesus asked that we heard in the reading. Who do people say I am, and who do you say I am? Now, I wonder um, what people say about you um, who know you. The story is told of um, a trial taking place in the South in America. It was in Mississippi. And the um, prosecuting lawyer was young. It was his first trial. And he was a little bit nervous. And as he called uh, the first witness to the stand, she was a rather sort of grandmotherly, lovely older lady, he thought, I'm going to ask her a super easy question first, just to get everyone relaxed. So he said to her, Mrs. Jones, do you know me? She replied, oh, yes, I do know you, Mr. Williams. I've known you since you were a boy, and frankly, you've been a big disappointment to me. You lie, you cheat on your wife, you manipulate people, you talk about them behind their backs, you think you're a big shot, and you haven't the brains to realize you'll never amount to anything more than a two-bit paper pusher. I know you. The lawyer was stunned, embarrassed, shocked, didn't know how to recover, so he pointed across the courtroom and he said... Mrs. Jones, do you know him, the defense lawyer? She said, oh, yes, I do. I've known Mr. Bradley since he was a youngster. He's lazy, bigoted, and he has a drinking problem. He can't build a normal relationship with anyone, and his law practice is one of the worst in the entire state. Not to mention he cheated on on his wife with three different women, and one of them was your wife. Yes, I know him. The defense lawyer, Mr. Bradley, nearly died. At this point, the judge told both lawyers to approach the bench and in a very quiet voice said, if either of you two idiots asks her if she knows me, I'll send you both to the electric chair. (laughs) Thank you at the back there. (laughs) So the question in the gospel today that we heard, who do people say I am, is a question for today. And I wonder, as you're sitting here this evening, what your answer would be to that question with regard to Jesus. You see, lots of people might answer, you know, who is Jesus with something like, well, you know, he's an important teacher. He's had, you know, really good teachings that have sort of been passed on. Others might think, you know, he's, he's a kind of... Uh, moral philosopher, a bit like Socrates, and, you know, good things, good ethics that have gone on to shape law and culture. You know, he's really contributed to to society in that way. Others might say, no, Jesus was a prophet. He understood the justice issues of his time, and he spoke powerfully about and to power. Others might imagine Jesus as a sort of golden-locked man wearing sandals with perhaps a white nightie on. 
For others, he's the distant figure in a stained glass window. Or he's a religious teacher who was important in his time. But really, it's an era of parents and grandparents, and possibly further back than that, for whom we feel an occasional hint of nostalgia. Sort of vaguely positive, but not much more than that. In Britain today, his name is predominantly used as a swear word. I was giving a a lecture at a Russell Group University a couple of years ago, and at the end of the lecture, there was a group of Chinese students. They'd been in Britain for six months, and um, they were asking me a bit about what I do and the kinds of theology lectures that I give in different contexts. And the name Jesus came up in the conversation we were having about history, and they looked shocked and offended. And it turned out that they had honestly never heard the word Jesus other than as an expletive by the British students that they'd met. And they thought people were swearing at them in this conversation. Who do people say I am? Who do you say I am? I suggest to you this evening that Jesus is worthy of our attention. He's worthy of our time in investigating that question. Even if only for the fact that still, over 2,000 years since his death, he is this kind of towering figure in our culture. One of my colleagues is a guy called Tom Price. He became a Christian while studying philosophy at university. And he said the beginning of his, at the beginning of his search, it kind of struck him that one person in 60 billion who stands out deserved a second look. H.G. Wells called Jesus the most dominant person in human history. Each year, as I'm sure you're aware, since 1927, Time magazine have selected their official person of the year, recognizing an individual who's done the most to affect the events of that particular year. But in 2013, Time magazine published their piece, Who's Biggest? The 100 Most Significant Figures in History. And it won't surprise you to know that Jesus Christ was top of that list. Jesus never wrote a book himself, and yet more books have been written about him than about anything else. In fact, one film based on the words that he spoke in the Gospels has been translated into over 100 languages, and more people have seen that film than have seen any other film in history. The historian Philip Schaff describing the overwhelming influence that Jesus has had on the subsequent history and culture of the world wrote this. He said, this Jesus of Nazareth, without money or arms, conquered more millions than Alexander, Caesar, Mohammed and Napoleon. And without science, he shed more light on things human and divine than all philosophers and scholars combined. Without the eloquence of schools, he spoke such words of life as were never spoken before or since. And he produced effects on people which lie beyond the reach of the orator or the poet. Except for one quite short time in his childhood, Jesus never traveled outside of his tiny country. And yet his followers are now in every country of the world and they're the largest religious group the world has ever seen. 
Jesus experienced no formal education, but thousands of schools and universities have been founded in his honour. Jesus has exerted this extraordinary influence, and that is in spite of the fact that his character often ran a counter to the accepted norms. The ancient world honoured virtues like courage and wisdom, but specifically not things like humility. People were generally divided by class delineation. Cicero famously wrote, rank must be preserved. But it was Jesus' life as a foot-washing servant that would eventually lead to the adoption of humility as an admired virtue rather than as something to be despised. The historian John Dixon writes, it's unlikely that any of us would aspire to this virtue were it not for the historical impact of Jesus Christ's crucifixion. He's exerted this extraordinary influence on history and he asks in this passage, who do people say I am? Who do you say I am? Well, Peter answers, you are the Messiah or you are the Christ. The claim here at the heart of Mark's gospel is that this man, Jesus, who lived in history, who's attested to by pagan and Roman and Jewish and Christian ancient sources, Jesus Christ is the Christ, the Messiah. Peter had seen him feed 5,000, walk on water, heal a deaf man, raise a paralytic up to walk, and crucially, to be able to forgive sins, to claim to be able to forgive people's sins. Jesus is no ordinary man. He is the Christ, says Peter. That means he's the long-expected, anointed one, the one who was prophesied about in history that one day would come into the world a saviour, a king, a person who would bring us into relationship with God. But here we are in 21st century Clapham. Should we really believe that today? Can we really believe in that today? I want to suggest to you this evening that making our minds up about whether we should believe this involves a process. It might involve exploring whether it's really possible to believe in God at all. It would certainly involve exploring whether it's a warranted belief that Jesus is God entering space, time, and history. And then thirdly, it's not just an intellectual question It's also a personal question. So firstly, believing in God at all. Christian belief in God as the creator, as the source of life, is often the starting point for people assuming that believers are irrational, a little bit soft in the head, maybe a bit suggestible, and certainly quite gullible. The thinking goes, you know, now that we've got science... And we've evolved to the extent that we've evolved and we've got the research that we've got. We don't really need God anymore. We don't need God as an explanation for life because we're pretty good at working out how life works. The idea is that 
You know, there are things that human beings can explain, and then there are areas that are gaps that we can't explain yet. And the idea is that we invoke God when it comes to those gaps. He's just the God of the gaps. He's the God, he's just what you invoke when you, you can't explain it. And now that we've got science, the space for a God of the gaps to inhabit is always diminishing. It's getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And we're very near the point where we don't need him at all because the gaps are so small. It's as if God as an explanation is this kind of throwaway idea for what's not rational. But Christians have never believed that God is a God of the gaps. The Bible doesn't present God as um, an explanation only of things that science can't explain. Rather, God is presented as the rational source of law and agency in this universe, as, a, as opposed to believing that everything is just random. My brother-in-law is called Simon, and he's a brilliant engineer. He's now the chief engineer um, at the MOD, and he spent his career predominantly working with helicopters. Um, physics was my worst subject at school, so let's just say that, you know, I look admiringly at his work, but I have no idea really what he's doing. But he designs helicopters, and he does that very successfully. Now, when a pilot first takes hold of a machine that Simon has designed, and people stand back and watch as, as you know, this thing takes its test flight, it's amazing. Now, let's imagine that we were standing watching this helicopter take off. And someone were to turn to you and say, because we understand the laws of aerodynamics and because we understand the mechanism, the machinery, the way this helicopter has been designed, that now means that we have no need for Simon. We would think that's a very silly thing to say. You're making a category mistake between the designer, the laws he's drawn on, and the, and the way the machine works. God is not the God of the gaps. The God of the Bible is presented as the foundation of law, agency, reason, even science itself. In fact, it was the belief in an intelligent creator that convinced the great pioneers of science like Galileo and Kepler and Newton and others that science could and should be done. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, men became scientific because they expected law in nature and they expected law in nature because they believed in a law giver. Isn't it actually rational to look at the order and the law in the universe and see that as evidence of intelligence? If I were to come across the letters A-M-Y spelled out in the sand, I would conclude that an intelligent agent had strung those letters together, spelling out my name. But when we see the billions of letters in perfect order in DNA, why do we conclude the opposite? One of my colleagues is a brilliant um, professor of maths at, at Oxford University called John Lennox. And he wrote this. He said, we have only to see a few letters of the alphabet spelling our own name in the sand to recognize at once 
the work of an intelligent agent. How much more likely then is the existence of an intelligent creator behind human DNA, the colossal biological database that contains no fewer than 3.5 billion letters, the longest word yet discovered? The existence of mechanisms and laws is not an argument for the absence of an agent who set those laws and mechanisms in place. On the contrary, their very sophistication points to a mind, a brilliance behind all of this. And then when you don't just look at the material world, you look at unseen realities, metaphysical things like thought, love, language, reason. It strikes us that that profound reality of a metaphysical dimension to life, whose origins surely can't just be explained away by chance, since chance isn't a mechanism. Chance is just a shrug of the shoulders saying, I don't know why. Surely that points to the possibility of God in the picture. Who do you say I am? Believing in Christ involves believing in the divine. And I suggest to you this evening that that is not an irrational gamble. It is a reasonable position when we explore and examine the, uh, the evidence. But it doesn't just mean believing abstractly in God as a probability or even as a kind of explanation for things. You see, here this question draws us deeper in because Jesus asks who do you say I am? You see, we're being asked to believe that God doesn't just exist distantly, but that he has chosen to make himself known in and to our world in the person of Jesus. And as Christians, the most important evidence supporting that claim is around Jesus Christ's resurrection from the dead. Now I hear you say, come on, you're talking about um, a dead person rising thousands, you know, thousands of years ago. Surely that goes against the grain of all that science you've been praising. Aren't miracles totally logically impossible? Don't they violate the laws of nature that you say God established? Now, of course, if we come to look at something like this resurrection of Jesus claim, and as we look at it, we come with a predetermined commitment to the idea that miracles can never happen, that the universe is a closed system. When we look at the resurrection claims, we're going to project that pre-commitment onto what we see. But my question is, is that pre-commitment to the impossibility of a miracle occurring? Is that rational? Is it open to challenge? Is it based on reason? With regards to miracles, C.S. Lewis pointed this out. He said, if on each of two nights I put 10 pounds into my bedside drawer, the laws of arithmetic tell me that I now have a total of 20 pounds. If, however, on waking up, I find only five pounds in the drawer, I don't conclude that the laws of arithmetic have been broken, but possibly the laws of England. You see what he's saying? 
the laws of nature describe to us how the universe runs. But if God created the universe with those laws, he is not prisoner to them. Just as a thief isn't a prisoner to the laws of arithmetic. My room is not a closed system. A thief can break in and intervene. And at the heart of the Christian claim is that God has done that. And he's done it in a way that is recognizable to us. Think about this. If we didn't understand the laws of nature, that dead people, after they died, we bury them and then they rot. They don't live again. If we didn't understand that, Jesus or a resurrection from the dead wouldn't be a miracle. It wouldn't be a message. It wouldn't be a revelation. It wouldn't be an intervention from outside. It is only our knowledge of the laws of nature that make it possible for us to recognize a miracle. And the laws of nature cannot rule out that possibility. So the question is, did it happen? Are we deluding ourselves that this miracle of a resurrection is a sign that God is real and that he has come into this world to show us who he is in Jesus? Well, if you go on Alpha, you can investigate this in further depth. But I just want to share with you one um, piece of research. Richard Swinburne, um, for years, um, the philosophy professor at the University of Oxford, now retired, but um, still traveling and lecturing um, all over the place, demonstrated in his research that the resurrection of Jesus is strongly supported by probability theory. Swinburne used the probability formula known as Bayes' theorem in assessing the probability of Jesus Christ having been raised from the dead. And in his book published by OUP and um, his research given at academic conferences around the world, Swinburne, one of the leading intellects of the late 20th and early 21st century of this country, concluded that the probability of the resurrection of Christ having actually occurred is 97%. N.T. Wright, the brilliant historian, writes this. No other explanations have been offered in 2,000 years of sneering skepticism against the Christian witness that can satisfactorily account for how the tomb came to be empty, how the disciples came to see Jesus, how their lives and worldviews were transformed. So I suggest to you this evening it is perfectly reasonable, it is persuasively rational even, to deduce from the evidence that a miracle has occurred in history and that Jesus was raised from the dead. Who do you say I am, Jesus asks. The resurrection of Jesus, if a warranted belief, leads us to a conclusion, not just that God exists, but that God has come in history. That Jesus was, in fact, who he claimed to be, and who Peter recognized him to be, the Christ the one long awaited, the one prophesied about, God with us. So my question to you this evening is, what would your answer be? Who do you say I am? Jesus asks. If like Peter, you conclude 
he is the Christ. There's more than an intellectual dimension to it. There's a personal dimension. You see, Christian faith is not primarily an intellectual position about ideas, although I suggest to you it is a robust, profoundly interesting, rigorously defensible intellectual idea. But it's much more than that. You see, if true, at the heart of Christian faith is the offer of a relationship with a personal God who is real and who actually cares about you. And if he's there, surely it's rational and reasonable to be open to pursuing the possibility of connection with him. If, as Christ claims, he offers peace that passes understanding. If he offers us love, life, forgiveness. He offers to be able to deal with what he describes as our weary, heavy laden souls. Surely it would be rational to receive those gifts. If he's real connection with him would make a real difference in our lives. And I suggest to you today that that too can and ought to be tested. We might do that by praying the simple agnostics prayer. God, if you're there, reveal yourself to me. That is a great start. The personal dimension of who Jesus is and his offer to be able to connect us with God is testable too. One of my favourite writers um, at the moment is Matthew Paris. I don't know how many of you um, like his writing. He writes for the Times and um, sometimes for the Spectator. A little while ago, um, he did a longer piece exploring um, the African country that he'd grown up in as a child. And he hadn't been back for years and years, and he was going back as an adult um, to revisit the place of his childhood. Um, You may know that uh, Matthew Paris is an atheist, and so a small section of the piece um, reflects on the faith that he observed um, in the people that he met, and this is what he wrote. Now a confirmed atheist, I've become convinced of the enormous contribution that Christian evangelism makes in Africa sharply distinct from the work of secular NGOs, government projects, and international aid efforts. These alone will not do. Education and training alone will not do. In Africa, Christianity changes people's hearts. It brings a spiritual transformation. The rebirth is real. The change is good. He goes on, I used to avoid this truth by applauding, as you can, the practical work of mission churches in Africa. It's a pity, I would say, that salvation is part of the package. But Christians, black and white, working in Africa, do heal the sick, do teach people to read and write. And only the severest kind of secularist would see a mission hospital or school and say the world would be better without it. I would allow that if faith was needed to motivate the missionaries to help, then fine. But what really counted was the help, not the faith. But this doesn't fit the facts. Christianity changes people's hearts. It brings a spiritual transformation. 
The rebirth is real. The change is good. That's the verdict of one of our country's leading atheists. I think that's quite interesting. Jesus' question to us this evening is a kind of over-to-you moment. Who do you say I am? Peter's answer, you are the Christ, is intellectual. He's saying that he believes that God exists and he believes that Jesus is God and his long-awaited revelation in history has now come. It is intellectual. It involves believing something. But it is more than that. It is personal. Peter has come to trust in the person of Christ for himself. And through Christ to make that personal connection to God. His love, his life, his forgiveness. And we're invited to do the same. To believe, yes, and to trust personally. And just like all over the world, as people gather in churches and consider these questions, this offer goes out to us here in Clapham today, as it has over centuries and as it does all over the world. Who do you say I am? Would you like a connection to God if he's real. The book of Revelation depicts it like this. The book of Revelation um, has this image of Jesus. And he says, I stand at the door and knock. Anyone who hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him or her and he or she with me. That's a claim that God is real and he wants you to open that door to him, that metaphorical door, that door to your heart, your soul, your life. And the promise is that if you open that door, if you invite him through that door, he will come. He will meet you. And through his death on the cross, he is able to meet you wherever you are in brokenness or shame or regret or really quite prosperous and happy. He will come and meet with you. We just need to open the door. And opening the door involves believing in him. It involves recognizing who he claimed to be, receiving that offer of forgiveness that he offers us and inviting that closer, deeper connection with the God who is actually real. Who do you say I am? Jesus asks. Why don't we pray for a moment? We just bow our heads and have a moment with him now. Maybe that um, you've been a Christian for a long time, but that image of Christ standing and knocking and that sense of a door being closed that you need to open 
maybe that you just want to do that right now in prayer and invite that deeper, closer, real connection with God through Christ now. But it may be that you've never done that, but you'd like to, you do sense that Jesus is, is real and that he's here and you, you want to open that door to him. So I'm just going to pray. And if you would like to, please do just echo the prayer in your heart. So in response to your question, Lord Jesus, who do you say I am? Along with Peter and the billions of others who've done this before. This evening we recognise who you are, that you are the Christ, you are the Lord, you are God with us. And Lord Jesus, tonight I want to open that door of my heart to you and invite you to come in. I pray for deeper and closer connection with you. And for those praying for the first time, I thank you for the forgiveness that you offer through your death on the cross. And I receive that and I invite you into my life. I want to eat with you and talk with you and know you. I want that connection with you, God. So I invite you into my life through what you did on the cross. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.